Well, grab your Bibles, make your way to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning, beginning in verse 10, and we're going to work our way through verse 24. As a reminder, for the last several weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' journey back to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Shelters. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles at times, and we started this journey three weeks ago, which begins actually in the beginning of John chapter 7. And there we found Jesus in the northern territory of Galilee. It was there his brothers came to him and said, hey, you need to go down to this feast, the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, because you need to make yourself known, make yourself public. You need to go down there. You need to kind of show off what you got. And Jesus responded that it wasn't his time to do that. He knew the religious leaders wanted to kill him, and he told his brothers that he was going to skip out on this particular feast. And it brings us now to verse 10 in chapter 7, where we find Jesus does in fact go privately. He goes in secret, and that he goes to bring glory to the Father. And it may seem like there's a discrepancy, or Jesus just flat out lies to his brothers about not going to this particular feast, but he's trying to get them to understand that he goes in his father's time, and he goes according to his father's will, and he goes only so that the father may be glorified. Our focus this morning is the power of the word. It begins in verse 10, and we're going to work our way through verse 24. And the word Lord says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answer, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, that he has died for our sins. He has risen again that we might be forgiven and saved. We thank you that you have given us your spirit for those who have confessed their need for forgiveness and Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and your spirit dwells inside of us, and we pray that your spirit, as it's in this place as well, would guide us through your word, be our shepherd. We come before you in the promise that you have delivered Where two or more are gathered in your name, you are in their midst. 
And so, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for that incredible act of mercy that we're able to be in your presence. And we pray that it be just your voice that we hear. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that's ready to accept what you're going to lay before us today. Lord, don't let anything come out of my mouth that is not pleasing to you. We praise you that you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you alone be glorified in this place, that your kingdom and will would be the only thing that is done. I ask you to forgive us where we may have failed you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so as mentioned, Jesus did in fact go down to Jerusalem, and it tells us he went in private, which means he went secretly. Now, I don't know how he managed to remain in secrecy while he's in Jerusalem. He didn't reveal himself until about midway through the feast. But we can find throughout the Gospels, Jesus has his way at times where he can evade the crowds. He most likely stood on the outskirts as the festivities were taking place and just having a moment of private worship. And there's something beautiful about private worship. I know we we gather in this place in the name of Jesus Christ and we gather in his presence and we form the body which is the church, but there's still something beautiful about having a private worship. I, I enjoy my private worship time. And worship doesn't always imply singing. And sometimes we just put it in that category, but most of my private worship times actually happen in the car with no music going on. I like to turn down the radio and just keep it quiet and just kind of talk to God. Uh, sometimes in my head, sometimes I move my mouth, so if anybody sees me at a stoplight, they probably think I'm crazy. But just being there in communion with God and, and looking around and kind of seeing what's going on around in his world uh, kind of drives Jamie and the kids nuts, as they did in the car that I've been driving, because they like to crank the music up really loud, and so they got to figure that out, which isn't too hard. But I hope you have a private worship time, a time where you can just maybe just get into the Word. Maybe it's in the morning, you grab a cup of coffee, notebook and a pen, and you just sit there and you read God's Word and allow His voice just to speak over your heart, just to be in His presence in the moment. And I would encourage you, if you aren't already, to develop a private worship time. And I'm not going to tell you this is how you do it, and it has to be done this way or at this time. But just that time where you can be with the Father. Jesus frequently got alone to be with the Father. And as this festivity began starting, he started the worship process in private, in secret. It wasn't about him. That's what he wanted his brothers to understand. It wasn't about him. Is what the, the festival represented. Reminder, the Feast of Booths was an eight-day celebration. And what it did is it remembered when God provided and perfect, protected his people as they went through the wilderness wanderings. And so all throughout the city of Jerusalem, it would be quite a spectacle to see as people would come and they would build these stick tents using palm leaves to cover it, and they would actually sleep out in the streets just to remember the time where their ancestors would put up tents and they would sleep out in the wilderness. It was one of three main events within the Jewish community, and it was about six to seven months before the Passover. Now, there are actually three groups of individuals in our passage this morning outside of Jesus. The first is the Jews. Verse 11, it says, the Jews were looking for him. And even though all the people at the festival would have been Jewish, the phrase Jews within the Gospel of John always refers to the religious leaders. So this would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And then John mentions in verse 12 another group of people. 
which he calls the crowds. This would consist of two types of individuals. One part of the crowd would be people who actually lived in Jerusalem. That was their hometown. The other part of the crowd would be individuals who journeyed down to Jerusalem, made that pilgrimage just as Jesus did. And then John begins giving us some background information on what's going on at the festival in verses 10 through 13. First, he lets us know in verse 11 that the Jews were looking for him. They come with a question, where is he? And if we'd go back to the very beginning of this chapter, we know that the Jews are not looking for Jesus because they're interested in him, or they want to be around him, or they want to hear him teach. Chapter 7, verse 1 tells the Jews wanted to kill him. They were seeking to do that. This isn't the last time the religious leaders sought to kill someone. In Acts, we're actually told that the religious leaders put a hit on the apostle Paul. Now, just think about that for a moment. What would it be like if pastors put a hit on somebody else and it became known? And so these religious leaders want Christianity to be wiped from the face of the earth. And the question of verse 11, again, isn't because they wanted to see Jesus. They had intentions with Jesus. Then John tells us the crowds, which again made up of two groups of people, they were also talking about Jesus. Some said he was a good man there in verse 12. Others says he's leading people astray. So the crowds are kind of on polar opposites about Jesus and what he's been doing and what he's been teaching. And that accusation in verse 12 about Jesus leading people astray is actually a pretty big accusation coming from Jewish people. In Deuteronomy chapter 13 God gave the instructions to his people that if a prophet would emerge and begin doing miracles, but then attempt to lead God's people away or astray from him, then that individual would need to be put to death. And so with these two major opposing views within the crowds of Jerusalem, Jesus is just kind of hiding back. In verse 13, John gives us one more detail about the festivities So the people were talking about Jesus, some good, some bad. They weren't doing it publicly. And they weren't doing it publicly for the fear of the Jews, the fear of the religious leaders. What we're being told about in verse 13 is the crowds were aware of the hatred that the religious leaders had toward Jesus. After all, he had been there in Jerusalem before this time. And he revealed to the religious leaders that they were misinterpreting and misteaching the scriptures. And these religious leaders were supposed to be the ones viewed as having the authority of scriptures. They were trained to deliver them and interpret them to the people. But in verses 10 through 14, it brings us to an interesting question concerning the word. What keeps us from sharing the word? When I was in seminary, I took a class, it was discipleship and evangelism. And there are two parts of this class we had to do. One part of the class was the discipleship part where we had to read Christian classics written and read sermons written by people of the past like C.S. Lewis and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon. The other part of the class is that we were instructed that we had to go and share the gospel at least one time during the week and then we had to write a report about it. And typically in those times I would 
be at a gas station and I'd share the gospel with someone else at the other pump or I'd be at the grocery store and so I'd start sharing the gospel with the person checking me out. After They couldn't go anywhere because they're stuck having to ring up my groceries. This is pre-COVID before we had a lot of all those self-checkout things. So don't go to the grocery store that have self-checkouts begin sharing the gospel with the computer. That doesn't count. But what the class taught me and emphasized is that as God's people, we have to be intentional about sharing the gospel. Because if we aren't, then the people that God has purposefully brought into our lives, whether it's at work or a grocery store or a gas station, they may never hear the gospel. And so God hasn't placed us in that, that store or that gas station or your workplace or students in your classroom by accident. He's placed you there to be an ambassador. And to be a light and a salt. In our passage, the people were not talking about Jesus who was the living word because fear had overtaken them. And maybe this is what keeps us from sharing the word, the gospel with people. We have a fear of what our peers or our family or friends or co-workers may may say or maybe in how they respond. Maybe we have a fear like the crowd You might not say the right thing, or you might not say the thing that people actually want to hear. But if as God's people, we're not going to be intentional about sharing the word of God, then who is? As all the murmuring is taking place, verse 12 says there's much muttering. It means murmuring. That means there was widespread whispering going about. There was widespread grumbling going about. Jesus, he's just kind of hanging out. The shadows, it's like Batman Jesus at this moment. And then he finally makes himself known in verse 14 at the festival. And I think he comes and makes himself known, even though he came in private and came in secret. He comes to make himself known because the people weren't willing to speak publicly about him because of fear. And Jesus showed that he had no fear of the religious leaders, and he makes himself publicly known. I think it's good to know that we have a Savior who will not back down. It is interesting how he does it, though. We're told at the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus goes to the temple, the most public place in this entire festival, and he begins teaching at the temple. This would have been a place where the religious leaders would have been gathered, those individuals who wanted to kill him, and Jesus shows up, in the middle of this festival, and just starts teaching. And we, we might hear that, oh, he started teaching. And that might, to us, that might not be a huge statement. It might not be a mind-blowing thing. Yet in Jesus' culture, in this particular moment, that statement is huge. Because for Jesus to come into the temple and to begin teaching, he is declaring to everyone there that he has the authority of a Jewish rabbi. Again, that might not mean like a big thing, but this would have driven the religious leaders bonkers, which is the background of the question in verse 19. See, in order to be a Jewish rabbi, one would have to come to know the authority of the Scriptures, and to do that, they would have to be trained by another prestigious Jewish rabbi. It was a requirement. And it was obviously well known among the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus has not had this training. He does not have the authority to do what he is doing, but then he begins speaking. He begins teaching, and the religious leaders become baffled. Verse 15, 
The Jews therefore marveled. It may sound like they were in awe, but it really means they were perplexed. They were confused. They were surprised. They really didn't know what to do with it. And this wouldn't be the last time these leaders would be perplexed and surprised. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost upon the believers, they started speaking in a language they did not know. And the crowds that were there, they marveled. They were surprised. They were perplexed. They were trying to figure out. And they said, are not all of these people speaking Galileans? The implication there in Acts chapter 2 and here in John chapter 7 is they're not trained to do this. They have not been educated to do this. When Peter and John were arrested in Acts chapter 4, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which have been the religious leaders. And Peter delivers a gospel message to the religious leaders, and they were baffled. They were perplexed. And the only conclusion they could come about with Peter and John is they had been with Jesus. We don't know exactly what Jesus taught on here in verse 14. Most likely it was the kingdom of God. Most likely he was expanding and interpreting the scriptures. Leading up to this in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which is known as Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus did. He interpreted the scriptures. And as he wrapped up his sermon in Matthew chapter 7, you can go and look there. It's in verse 28 and 29. It says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes, who were supposed to be the authority on the scriptures. Typically when a rabbi taught, what they would do is they would take a, a passage or a verse from what we call the Old Testament. And with their training, they would read that verse. And then they would quote from a rabbi of the past. And that was their training so it would be comparable today if we read this passage of Scripture and then I just said, and this is what Charles Spurgeon says about this. And that's all we did. Meaning I didn't put any thought or time into the Word myself, but I relied on someone else's investment. And don't get me wrong, I read commentaries throughout the week. I listen to sermons of biblical preachers and teachers that uh, I, I, I believe that they're preaching the Bible. But if I'm not investing personal time in the passage, I'm not really allowing the passage to speak to me. And therefore, how can I expect the passage to speak to you? And once a question is put forward, verse 15, Jesus addresses the situation through the word of God. Because there's power in knowing the word. And this might be the answer to the first question we ask on why people don't share the word. It's because they don't know the word. Jesus tells all who are gathered in this assembly that they can recognize his authority because his teaching is not his own, but is from the one who sent him. Jesus is saying the authority he has and the knowledge he has of the scriptures is because it is from God and not from a man, even if it would be a well-known rabbi. And so I'm all for reading books and sermons from, again, good biblical preachers and teachers. But we must be in the Word of God individually as well. Jesus obviously had a leg up on us. He was the living Word. He wrote the book. But in our country, there's nothing keeping us from getting into God's Word. We live in a country where there's nothing keeping us from studying God's Word and memorizing God's Word. The only thing that keeps us from that is time management and priorities. 
In verses 17 and 18, Jesus makes the key statement of our passage. And it's directly right towards the religious leaders. Verse 17 and 8 says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He's telling them, these, again, the religious leaders, if they actually knew the word of God, then they would know that his teaching is truth. Not that he, if they actually knew the word of God, then they wouldn't be seeking to glorify themselves, but their only aim would be to glorify God. And if they actually knew the word of God, then they would understand who Jesus Christ is in the Messiah. Because to know the word of God is to know God's will. And we talked about the will of God about three weeks ago when we first came into this chapter. The will of God is what God desires. It is his plan. It is his purpose. It is the will, not only what God wants to have happen, but the will of God is what will definitely will happen according to his plan. So when people say, I don't know what God wants me to do, what they're actually saying and testifying is, I do not know God's will. And Jesus is telling the religious leaders and us, if we want to know God's will, if we want to know his plan and his desire, and if we want to know what he wants and what it will ultimately be, then the only place that we can discover it is through God's word. He's also telling us, if we want to know God, and we want to know Jesus, and we want to know the Holy Spirit, then the only way to come to that knowledge is through the Word of God. There's no way to know God except through reading of His Word and listening to biblical teaching and preaching on His Word. He can, we can sing all the Christian songs we like. You can listen to all the Christian radio that you can possibly stand. You can buy all the Christian t-shirts that you can possibly afford. But if we're not in the Word of God listening to His voice, then we'll never know Him We'll never know Jesus, we'll never know the Holy Spirit, and we'll never be able to understand his plan. When I was in youth ministry, I was a summer interim in Illinois, and I came across this guy that told me he met God in a cornfield. Well, that's great. Were you in the cornfield with your Bible? No. Okay. Were you in the cornfield just thinking about a sermon you just heard? No, never been to church. Are you reading your Bible now? No. Are you going to church now? No. Why would I need to? I met God in a cornfield. And what scared me about that is he told me he was interviewing for a youth pastor position in a church down the road. And all I could think is, this sounds eerily familiar how Mormonism started. We met God by digging a hole under a tree on a hill and receiving a revelation there is danger when people do not use the word of God to reveal God. Because this is how we find him. In verse 19, Jesus sheds light on the underlining situation. And he does it through a question. How, Moses not given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And so he first brings up Moses, which would have been perfect for the scenario he's in, the situation, we've got to keep in mind, he's at the Feast of Booths. They are celebrating 
the wanderings, the God's protection and his provision. And who led the Israelites in that time? Yes, God, but Moses. And so he brings up Moses and he says that, has Moses not given you the law? And, and we've got to understand, in the Jewish community, the law of God was also called the law of Moses because God gave Moses the law, and then Moses was to deliver the law to the people. And so this is what Jesus is alluding to in that opening question in verse 19. But he's also in this moment doing something very crafty that we read right over if we don't understand the context. He's actually using a rabbi's form of teaching by asking a rhetorical question to the, to the Jewish people to the religious leaders. The Jews, which again is the religious leaders, would have known the law because it was their job to teach the law and interpret the law to the Jewish people. And so then Jesus brings two accusations against them. The first is, after he gives the rhetorical question, is that they may know the law, but here's the problem. You don't keep it. And that word means obey. And then he backs up that accusation with an insight that he has about the religious leaders and their intention to kill him. And I can't imagine their faces. I I, I want you to try to picture their faces as Jesus makes this statement. You don't keep the law because if you did, why are you trying to kill me? And they'd be looking at you like, who told him? How did he know that? And I imagine they were dumbfounded, and so we don't find any sort of rebuttal or response from them. Instead, the crowds speak up on behalf of them. And so as Jesus brings their evil intentions into the lights, the crowds, again, the Jewish people that are in attendance, they're just as confused. So in verse 12, jump back up there real quick, is most likely speaking of both types of crowds that I mentioned earlier, and then who journeyed to Jerusalem and and lived in Jerusalem. Verse 13 is most likely speaking about those who lived in Jerusalem because they were aware of the religious leaders' intentions with Jesus or how they at least felt about Jesus. And so we come down to verse 20, and this is most likely returning back to those who had pilgrimed into Jerusalem. So they are totally confused and unaware of what has been going on, and they are appalled at this accusation that Jesus has now delivered to these religious leaders, the religious elites. And the reaction to Jesus' statement, verse 20, is you have a demon. And what they're saying is you are demon-possessed, man. You're paranoid. You're completely out of your mind. Who's trying to kill you? So this, he's Jesus, and we got to love Jesus for this. Like, all right, let me prove my point. And he does it through a personal experience but he mostly does it through the Word of God because the Word of God is our defense. Verse 21, the work, I did one work. In the Gospel of John, the word work implies miracles. So he's saying, I did one miracle. And the particular miracle or work that Jesus is referring to at this moment is found in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus goes by a pool called Bethesda, and there he heals a paralyzed man. Yes. The problem is, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, it was on the Sabbath. And so this was viewed as a violation. 
He was not keeping the law of the Sabbath because to heal was considered an act of work. And you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so this particular miracle is one of the things which ignited the religious leaders to want to kill Jesus even more than they already did. So Jesus takes that circumstance, which was witnessed by many, including the religious leaders, and probably began to talk of the town, and he moves that into circumcision, which seems kind of weird, but we'll expand it here in a second. So Moses was given the instructions concerning circumcision to deliver to the people. But it wasn't actually Moses who initially got the instructions. It was Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And so this is what Jesus is pointing to when he brings up the word fathers there in verse 22. That word can also be read as patriarchs. Because it was handed down from Abraham to generation to generation. But Moses had to be reminded to tell the people this is something that God still requires because the act of circumcision was going to be something that God was going to use to declare that he is setting his people apart from the people of this world. So when a Jewish boy was born, they would have to be circumcised on the eighth day. The problem occurred within the Jewish community. Okay, what happens... When a Jewish boy is born on the Sabbath, that'd be day one, that would mean, according to the law of circumcision, he would need to be circumcised on the eighth day, which would be the next Sabbath, because they counted day one as the day of birth. So, since circumcision is considered an act of work, can we still do it? And the Jewish leaders came to conclude, since circumcision is what made a Jewish boy whole and right with God, then circumcision would be permitted on the Sabbath, even though it was seen as an act of work. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's taking from the word of God. Okay, you know what God said about circumcision. You know when it's supposed to be done, and you know God's intentions concerning circumcision. Then he takes from their own teaching and says, and this is what you said about circumcision in relation to the Sabbath. And then finally what he does, and I love it, he flips it on them. And he says, if you take the act of work known as circumcision and you declare it lawful to do on the Sabbath because it makes a child whole and right with God, then how can you be mad at me when I took a Jewish man who had been paralyzed and I healed that man, making him whole again, and now he's able to go in the temple and be made right with God? What a master teacher. And so... The thing is, if we defend ourselves through the word of God, that's all we can do. We use the word of God for our defense. And I want to say, we aren't defending God. God doesn't need us to defend him. He's a big God. He can take care of himself. But we defend ourselves. And what we do is we defend our beliefs. We defend our convictions. We defend why we do and why we don't do what we do through God's word because it is the only absolute truth. It will never change. Paul was led to write concerning the word of God that it's part of our spiritual armor in this world because it is the sword of the spirit. 
And in a battle, the sword was not only used for attacking, but for defending. And then Jesus brings it home here in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, the religious leaders, they were all about outward appearances. That's why Jesus frequently referred to them as hypocrites. They liked to put on a show. They wanted to act holy before the people, even though they were not. Jesus' brothers wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem during this festival so that he would go and put on a show. But he wasn't going to be like the religious leaders. Again, he was going to go for the father's, in the Father's time, for the, in the Father's will, and for the Father's glory. The religious leaders wanted people to be in awe of them instead of being in awe of God. And Jesus previously alluded to this in verse 18. So Jesus is here and he's standing in the temple. He's looking at these men and there's, crowd, there's a crowd around them as well, but he's looking at these men who had access to the scripture. He's revealed he knows their intention that they want to kill him. Therefore, they're breaking the law because they have the act of murder in their heart. And he tells them, if you want to make a proper judgment on the situation then you can only do it through the word of God. And so what it tells us is we judge through the word of God. And some of you may hear me say that and say, well, wait, 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 Pastor, I think the Bible says thou shalt not judge. And you're you're correct, depending on what version of Scripture you're reading. Um, Throughout Scripture, are several passages that tell us not to judge. And what that means is we are not in the place to cast judgment on another individual. This is what John and James, the sons of thunder, got rebuked about because they were wanting to cast judgment on the Samaritans when they wanted to call down fire from heaven. But we are to judge through sound judgment with the word of God, meaning we are to use God's word in order to gain wisdom. We are used God's word in order to gain understanding. Another word it uses in scripture is discernment. We use God's word to grasp these or get these things so that we can understand the things that are going on in our world, the decisions which are being made, and the people or groups' viewpoints. And so we judge not the people, situation. What is being said? Decisions being made. Viewpoint of a certain group. And so when we're saying we're going to be judging through the word of God, it's a simple question. Does this, whatever it is, does this align or match what God has already said? If it does... Praise the Lord. If it doesn't, then we aren't to partake or support it. This is why God gave the law in the Old Testament initially. is so that the people of God can make proper decisions as they lived in this world. If every Christian, every believer would do this, it would shape how we vote on matters in our nation and political figures we support. 
We wouldn't go off of popular opinion. We wouldn't go off of what is socially acceptable. We wouldn't go off of what other people may be doing in our life or what they think isn't that big of a deal. We would base our decisions on what is truth. As mentioned, Jesus knew the religious leader's intentions. He knew they wanted to kill him. And eventually they would get what they wanted, but not yet. The opening of this chapter, Jesus tells the brothers it wasn't his time. And so even though he probably has infuriated these religious leaders, the truth of the matter, it still wasn't his time. But Jesus is going to return back to Jerusalem one more time for the Passover festival. And at that appointed time, the religious leaders would get what they wanted. And they would lead Jesus to the crucifixion. You see, Jesus came to make God known, but he ultimately came to die for the sins of the world at the appointed time by God, not by man. And that would eventually happen. He would die on a cross, very painful death. Then he would rise again to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life in heaven. And the Bible tells us that it is God's desire his will that everyone would be saved, and perhaps that's why you're here today. Perhaps you're here because today is meant to be the day of your salvation. And God has made it very clear through his word, which is absolute truth. Eternal life in heaven can only be found through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not beat around the bush. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so he's made it very clear, but he's also made it very simple to obtain. The Bible lets us know we have to come before God and admit that we're a sinner. We fall short of his holiness and his perfection. We, we mess up at times. That's how the Bible defines sin. And then the Bible says we have to believe in our heart that God would love us so much he sent his only son Jesus to die for our sins, and he did. But he rose three days later from the tomb to show he has the power to forgive sins and the authority to grant eternal life if we place our faith and trust in him alone. And if you're here this morning and you get to do that, there's one more step that God tells us to do in his word, and that is we must confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That word confess in Scripture means to make publicly known. If you're here this morning and you know that's something you need to do, the Holy Spirit is getting a hold of your heart in this very moment, I'm going to be standing right here and I'm going to invite you to just come down. All you have to say is, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. We'll pray together and we'll celebrate together. But I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for giving us this incredible gift of your voice recorded for us through all eternity. Lord, let us be a people of your word. Let us be a people who know your word and live your word and, and, and defend why we believe what we believe with your word. Thank you for this time we've been able to be together. We ask as we come this time of invitation and response, you continue to be glorified. Forgive us we failed you in any way and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.